All right, I'm going to start with a, a story this morning. It's a less flattering story about here. Um, I spent a few years living in China, some of you guys may know. And one of the times when I was heading back there for a semester at school, my friend Andrea helped me move. She's not here this morning, they just had a baby, but Andrea usually sits over here. So this was about 10 years ago, and so she helped, you know, haul some extra suitcases. And for part of that trip, um, we went to, we stopped over in a city called Xi'an to look at the, the Terracotta Warriors, if you've ever seen that, and it's pretty cool. And so our plane got into Xi'an late, and I think it was like close to midnight. And there were just a few taxis outside the airport, and so we took the first one that looked suitable. Now, I'd already lived in China for a few months, so I knew about what it should cost us to take that taxi, even late at night. And we had this young man, and as he drove us, I saw the meter jumping, like, astonishingly fast. And so I said something to him. I said, you know, look, this, I know that this is too much for what this should cost. And we were on the highway, and it was dark, and we were at his mercy in the back of this car, and he kind of seemed like he might have been on something. I don't know, but he just started, like, going really, really, really fast down the highway, and it started to scare me. And I could feel his anger bubbling up, and so I was kind of going back and forth with him, and then he started getting angry with me, and then I started getting angry back with him, and it was like, I could just feel it, and I could feel myself getting angrier, and we were like feeding off of each other. It was like one of the most visceral experiences that I have ever remembered, of feeling like my anger was just playing off of somebody else's. And if you know me, I'm, I'm pretty slow to anger, although I did get angry at a plumbing company yesterday. <laughs> but generally, like, that, like that's not my go-to emotion, and I was livid. And Andrea had known me a long time, and she could feel it, and I just remember her, I don't remember if she like turned to me, she just did this like, like kind of like, just deep breath, say a prayer, just sort of like, interrupt this. And so I had gone back and forth, and I finally just sort of like took in a deep breath, said a little prayer, and let that space there just sort of interrupt that whatever was going on between the two of us. You know, it should never cost 100 US dollars to get from the airport in Xi'an, especially 10 years ago. And so that time, I remember we got out of the car and he like tried to keep our, our suitcases in the trunk. He was like holding them hostage until we paid him the amount of money. And I ended up doing it. And so I was still angry about it, but that little space where Andrea just said, deep breath, was just that little space that I needed to like sort of detach from that escalating emotion that was feeding off of his. Whenever I tell a story like that, I also just want to make note that, like, in general, my experience of living in China is Chinese people are incredibly friendly and hospitable, right? So this is, like, one rogue taxi driver. But it was so, um, it was like, it, it was like such a moment of experiencing that feeding that I've just always remembered it, and I know Andrea remembers it, too. So the last couple of Sundays, Ken and I have been talking about how we humans have the capacity to imitate each other, including the ability to imitate the internal states of people around us, right? That we're herd animals, we're greatly impacted by the emotional states of our fellow humans. And we've talked about how fear can spread through a crowd really easily, but also joy can spread through a crowd really easily. Like if you're watching a football game and somebody gets a touchdown, like it just feels amazing. It like magnifies the emotional impact. But sometimes a violent desire or a harmful emotion can spread through a culture or a crowd. 
often when there's a lot of anxiety or fear in the air. And Rene Girard is the, um, his, his scapegoat theory is what we're unpacking here throughout our Lenten sermon series. He calls that phenomenon mimetic contagion. And mimetic simply means imitative. Right, so he talks about how our imitation of others' violent or harmful emotions and desires can, given the right circumstance, it can spread like a contagion through a culture. And when it does, it's oh so very dangerous for the most vulnerable people in the larger group. And I think that the faith of Jesus here gives us a few tools to help us resist that mimetic feeling. It interrupts that imitation of other people's emotions and interrupts the rivalry that we start to feel. Like I was feeling rivalry with that taxi driver. I wanted to win, but he had the power. (laughs) And I think that the beginning of this, it starts with the shaping of our desires. So I once heard Brian McLaren, who's a retired pastor now, he said, this is what prayer, it seems to me, most deeply is. Prayer is the formation and direction of desire. Prayer is the formation and the direction of desire. The idea being that when we open our hearts and our minds to being shaped by Jesus, that they're meant to be shaped and formed by this spirit of love. So in the Christian tradition, and especially in the Catholic Ignatian tradition, we talk about how we can be shaped and moved by the spirits. That's the language that's used, by the spirits, by powers and principalities that are outside ourselves are larger than, themselves, than ourselves. And that both those spirits are both systemic as well as personal. So if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the story of the suicidal pigs in the Gospels. And you might remember that we talked about how the Bible describes voices of false accusation as satanic. Right? That the word Satan in Hebrew, lowercase, is a word that simply means accuser. The Satan, Hasetan, the accuser. And when that force is personified in our text, it's personified as singular, it's talked about as Satan, capital S. And when that accusing force of voices is talked about or personified in the plural, then we talk about it in terms of being like many inferior evil beings or demons, right? So the idea that being infused with demons is like being infused with spirits of accusation, that we're taking on the accusing voices of the world in and around us. And so when I say that those voices are both systemic and personal, they're systemic in that entire systems can band together to promote false accusations about who people are, right? Undocumented immigrants are dot, dot, dot. Queer people are dot, dot, dot. Men are dot, 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 and so on. And we call the forces that fill in those blanks with false narratives satanic. But those accusing forces are also personal and that they can be deeply intimate to us, right? They can tell you things like, you're not enough because dot, dot, dot. And so the traditional word that we use for spirits that move us in the direction of accusation and rivalry and, and envy is possess. Right? The traditional word for the spirits that move us in the direction of accusation, rivalry, envy, and violence is possess. James Allison, who's a Catholic priest and a Girard scholar, he points out that that word, possess, contains a note of violence concerning the relationship between the spirit and the possessed person. Right, so some, some of you have probably seen that old movie, The Exorcist. It's like from the 1970s. You, know, you see like the picture of the girl's head like spins around. 
We're not talking to that extreme. That's not what I mean. Like, that doesn't happen. But the idea that that is depicting is that possession is a word that speaks of violence. Right? That's how we perceive and experience the effect of internalizing that kind of fear and anger, shame, and false accusation. Right? So when I was in that taxi with Andrea, you might say, if we're using spiritual language for it, that I felt the pull of being possessed by an angry spirit. Right? I was being influenced by that. Right? So they're accusing spirits, but also in the Christian imagination, there's a spirit called the advocate. The paraclete in Greek, also known as the Holy Spirit. And the traditional word that we use for this spirit inside of us, moving us in the direction of advocacy and love, is indwelling. Right? And that lacks the implication of violence against the person. Right? So we see that we're possessed by accusing forces on the one hand, because it doesn't feel good, it's unwanted. Or on the other, we might speak of a spirit of the advocate that dwells in us, welcome and wanted, and bringing peace. And so prayer in the Christian tradition supposes that we can be moved by such spirits, that we can be shaped by these spirits, however it is that you imagine them. And so the question for us becomes, what do we allow to shape our desires? Accusation and fear and rivalry? Or is it love and courage and advocacy for the vulnerable? Right? Are we welcoming the indwelling of the spirit of love? And the Christian nation presupposes that both of these are at work in us humans, in all of us. And it's a matter of discerning which spirits are influencing our thoughts and in our desires and our decisions. Right? So Christianity speaks of it in terms of spirits. You might think of it in psychological terms, if that's more helpful to you. But the spiritual language that's around this is meant to help us name that dynamic that all of us experience to some degree. And so prayer practices that that calm us and that lower our anxiety and that kind of quiet our interior can help us step back from the reactivity that otherwise is driving us, right? It can help detach us from imitating the desires or the emotions of everybody around us and to tune in then to the desires of the Holy Spirit. So calming prayer practices help us really decouple from the dynamics that lead to violence, Right, that we'll be less likely to mirror the hostility from others with our own reciprocal hostility, right? And we're more able to regard other people sympathetically. And this is what happened a little bit in that taxi ride, right? I'm feeding off that guy's emotions. I take in a deep breath. Okay, Jesus, help. I can detach. I'm not so involved. I'm not involved in the rivalry quite so much. I'm still a little bit mad about it, but I can step out of it. So one very basic prayer tool that helps interrupt this dynamic is the Jesus prayer. I think we talk about this quite a bit because it's so helpful. I found it so helpful personally. And it just says, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And there's some variations on that, but that's the one that I've been using more lately. Just Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You could say, Spirit of love, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the key mental skill that's developed by using something like this habitually to calm our minds and to use other prayer practices that are like this is that they teach us to shift our attention away from whatever particular line of thought it is that is starting to drive us or whatever feeling it is to return to that sort of central calming point, 
right? That over and over, these thoughts and impressions and feelings are sort of vying for our attention. And over and over again, we just sort of learn to return, like look over its shoulder and gently return to the center. And that trains our mind to come away from those anxious thoughts or those angry thoughts. We've got a focal point, come back here. Right, so I want to look at the spirit of love and imitate that rather than feeling enmeshed in the different emotions and feelings that are going on around me. So the, often in the Gospels, we see Jesus going off by himself to pray. Right, so that he'd go off early in the morning. And when you think about him, I think, man, he was just surrounded by crowds of people all the live long day. And I can only imagine just sort of the swirling desires and different emotions that he was impacted by in his, his ministry all of the time and how he had to manage that. And the way he did that was by going off by himself, John says, to see what the Father was doing. So in other words, Jesus would go off by himself to have some sort of prayer practice where he could just be with God and he said, I just want to know what you're doing. I want to know what your desire is so that I can imitate that rather than what's going on around me. Right? So we practice prayer to become more like this. We practice prayer so that we can learn to imitate Jesus or learn to imitate the spirit of love. Now, I think we're far enough away from um, this event now that I can share this story um, pretty happily to show how some of these disciplines can inform us in a larger crisis, right? That they can help us sort of interrupt those sorts of rivalries, you know, that can happen on a, a smaller level, like it was with me and the taxi driver, but also in larger crises, like if you're at work or in different situations with your families. So when my old church was in crisis over LGBTQ inclusion, which was almost five years ago now, if you can believe that, things got ugly. And there were so many competing desires. And the fear and the anxiety of the congregation was palpable. And it was so easy to allow myself to sort of take on those different accusing voices, people accusing me of things, Ken of things, and to mirror just that stress and the anxiety and that fear. And I absolutely felt it. I did mirror those emotions, but what I would do to manage it is I would go to my room I was renting a room in someone's house at the time. I remember this happened once at church. I think I actually write about it in the book. But I would do this pretty regularly. I had a rug in my room that I would go to, and I would get on my knees, and I would start with the Jesus prayer. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that would sort of calm me down and get me right into the space where I felt like I could just talk or commune with Jesus. And then I could speak out like the psalmist, like all of my fears, my anger, the frustrations, the confusion, all of those things. And then I think the key here is the thing that I would always ask God is, Jesus, what do you want? Right? That's, that's what I was taught to pray and how I was taught to pray. What are you doing? Can you give me eyes to see where you're at work and how can I cooperate with what you're doing? Like, if we take nothing else away this morning, I think this is the key thing. This is a great way to pray. Jesus, where are you at in this situation? How are you at work? How can I cooperate with what it is that you're doing? Because we need to look at Jesus and look for God, for what God is desiring, what God is doing. And that's the way that Jesus prayed. And when I didn't do that, I would feel like I was just in this swirl of competing emotions, trying to appease all of these various factions. 
And so I think whenever that storm, what that hits for you, whether that's in work or in a significant relationship or with your kids, you can just ask the Spirit what her desire is. What's your desire in this situation? How can I cooperate with that? Because that's what it boils down to. Now, I think there are times to fight back hard against false accusations. But what Jesus told me at that time, the guidance that I received, was to submit to the process and to let it play out. That was what I felt like I heard. So I was scared. I had seen that the scapegoating mechanism had been triggered. I actually recognized it for what it was because I'd been studying Gerard. And I remember thinking, it's begun. I'm going to be made a scapegoat here. And I felt like Jesus told me to relinquish any rivalries that I felt with other leaders and the trust that after my expulsion from the group, because that's where I saw it was going, that Jesus would birth something new, that there would be resurrection, which is what we are all part of. Right? And then I felt the comfort of Jesus with me in that, right? that Jesus had walked a scapegoating event himself, and it was even worse. It was physically painful, and he died in an agonizing way. And so I just had this comfort of regardless of whether I was actually hearing God right or not, I felt like I had this guidance that was able to give me a sense of inner peace, that I knew that I could come back to that center space, let it play out, it'll be okay, there's resurrection on the other side. And so that would interrupt that stressful pull of those competing agendas, right? And it was also leading me to relinquish the rivalries that I didn't need to fight for power or control or whatnot. My job I felt like God said was humanize myself, advocate for those who are vulnerable alongside of me, let the process play out, and trust Jesus. And then during that process, Ken and I would meet pretty regularly, and we would talk about what it was that we were hearing in prayer, because we were both feeling the stress of the rivalries. It's like, okay, what's Jesus saying to you? What's Jesus saying to you? And it was interesting to me that the Spirit was saying the same thing to him, but in a different way. And the picture that I asked him if I could share this, it's kind of a vulnerable thing to share your inner prayer stuff, but these were driven out of desperation. (laughs) The picture that Ken had pretty early on was that of Abram and Lot. So in Genesis chapter 13, there's a story about Abram, who's later Abraham, and his nephew Lot. And both of them were really wealthy nomadic herders, right? So they had hundreds, maybe even thousands of cattle that they had. And the whole entourage that goes with with raising those kinds of cattle. And the land that they were living together on, it wasn't large enough or verdant enough to continue to support both of their households. And they were told that the men who were working for them and tending to the herd started fighting regularly. So Abram and Lot decided to move their households to different places. They're like, look, there isn't enough space for the both of us, so let's just both move on. And so they looked out on the land before them, and Abram, who's the older uncle, he says to his nephew, he says, let's not have any quarreling between you and me, between your herders and mine, because we're close relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Right, so Abram gave Lot the choice. And so Lot's looking out over it, and he sees that one half is green and lush, and it has lots of water, and the people who were there were friendly. And the other half of the land was dry, and it was dusty. And so they had very little water, and the neighbors were unfriendly. And so Lot's looking out over that, and he chooses the greener pasture, and he's leaving Abram in the wilderness. But in that moment, in Genesis 13, God intervenes and he he tells Abram that he would be with him and he promised to bless Abram far beyond his nephew. 
And I remember sitting in Ken's living room, and I was sitting across from him, um, and him saying, I think I'm supposed to lay down my right to the greener pasture. I think I'm supposed to lay down my right to money, to resources, to the building, to fighting for power. Because he had considerable power, and he said, I think I'm just supposed to relinquish it because it's going to be ugly, and it's not going to be good for everyone. And I think in this case, I just need to step back in the face of the competing visions and resources. Now, Ken hadn't read through Girard's work quite yet, but I think the Holy Spirit guidance um, that he was getting was resonating with mine. And that was that the Spirit seemed to be directing our desires away from power and toward relinquishing rivalries, right? Which is what prayer is meant to make space for, right? Who knew? All that prayer and meditation, it pays off a little bit. And I think, gosh, it could be easy or tempted to think something like, oh, well, you guys are pastors, and that was a big thing, so, you know, maybe it's easier to hear from God. But in some ways, I would say, I still identify as like an old-school Pentecostal. And by that, I don't mean like the people pushing people down on TV. I mean Pentecostal in the sense that I believe that the Spirit of God has been unleashed into the world, and it can be accessible to every single human, right? Pastors, we, just, we have leadership giftings and preaching and teaching gifts that we offer to the community, just as you offer your gifts to the community. You know, if some people come from backgrounds where they think that, you know, that pastors are more spiritual than anyone else, but I think quite a lot of the news tells us otherwise, right? <laughs> but for me, this is, this is the whole kit and caboodle. This is, this is like the heart of Christian spirituality. This is the heart of soulless Jesus. If we can connect with the Holy Spirit of the living God and that we can have this kind of connection to a spirit of love that can help shape our desires and help us be moved in the direction of love and of non-accusation and of peace rather than in a spirit of fear and accusation, if we can actually learn prayer practices that can help us tap into that and be guided by Jesus, like that's, that's it. Right? The Pentecostal in me says, I don't care what your background is. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're educated. I don't care if you're literate. The spirit of the living God can dwell in you and lead you and guide you, right? This is the Pentecostal movement all throughout the world that is happening. And it doesn't have to look crazy. It doesn't have to look like something that scares you. It just is something that you're tapping into that is real. Right? And this idea that it is open to everyone, this is where we... Of the, of the Protestant movement, then that's called grace. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your diagnosis is. I don't care what your addictions are. I don't care what's going on in your life. This spirit is available to you. Right? The spirit is available to you to indwell you, to come, that you are welcome at the table of Jesus. And the idea is, is that the more we open ourselves up to being indwelled by this spirit of love, the more it starts to shape and change our lives. So with that said, I want to go into a little bit longer of a meditation. So we often do, you know, like a two or three minute silence or guided meditation. And so I'll invite you to start by calming your minds, saying some form of the Jesus prayer. It could be Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or if you're like, I don't know if I'm a Jesus person, just spirit of love, have mercy on me.
picture yourself walking through a calm, serene woods. Pay attention to what it looks like and smells like and sounds like as you're walking. As you're walking, you notice there are two streams, one off to your left and one off to your right. They're not large, they're not deep, but they're both there. And as you walk over to your left, you notice that this stream is a stream of accusation and fear. And all of that is running down through this water. So maybe stay a minute in your mind, go up to the bank of that stream and just, just kind of listen to it and notice it. And now you turn around and you go back the other way. And you go over to the stream off to your right. And this stream is a stream of love and of justice and of advocacy and of peace and gentleness. And as you go over that, just stand at the edge and listen to it. Feel it. If you're so inclined, you can step into it. And if there's a situation that's been causing you particular anxiety or stress, you might just picture that in your hands as you're standing there in the stream and just hold that out over this spirit of love. Perhaps it's a person, perhaps it's an inner battle. And if you're so inclined, I believe the spirit of love is a respecter of persons. But if you're inclined to invite that river to start to flow into your body and out into that situation, I invite you to imagine that.
Spirit of Jesus, Spirit of love, I invite you to show us how it is that you're working. I invite you to teach us to see where it is that you're at work in our situations, where you're present. Even if that presence is simply you just being alongside us with your arm around us. That you would teach us how to cooperate with you in all of the areas of our lives. And that you would open up some of these opportunities. You would help our eyes to see this space in our coming week. That there will be a tangible moment where we can say, okay, I want to know where, where God is at work here. We say we are open, if you are, to the indwelling of this Holy Spirit. And Jesus, I would ask that your spirit of love would come and would dwell within us and that it would be like a river that it's like described, the river that just erodes our own ego, a river that erodes those rivalrous or mimetic desires and that fills us with the desires of God for the world around us that you would teach us to be able to recognize when we're being pulled in to these situations where we're mirroring stress and anger, and that you would help us come back to that place where we're imitating the spirit of love. And through that, that you would transform us in the way that we are in the world. Ask for your blessing. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.